I don't know who you are. I don't know where you are. But what I do know is that I have a special set of skills, skills I have acquired over a very long career. If you give a positive review to Why the Long Face now, that will be the end of it. I will not pursue you. If you don't, I will pursue you. And I will find you. And I will make you listen to a full concert from Peace in Our Time with the backing singers and Josh Phillips' levels on high. Okay, everyone, welcome to episode 27 of the Great Divide podcast. This is Tom here with Svine. Hi, Tom. Hello, Svine. And this is our uh, long-awaited discussion of why the long face. Well, I don't know how long-awaited it is, but it is by us because we've been trying to set this up for a while. We finally got uh, our schedules to converge, and we're going to discuss why the long face. We're going to dissect the album like we've done with the others and it should be uh it would definitely be another trilogy so this is this is the first part of the why the long face trilogy so i mean this album is a pretty interesting album in the big country catalog and a lot of differing opinions on it some people really love it some people really don't it probably came at an interesting time for a lot of us and i know it probably is the same for you fine but i mean for me when this album came out this was the first big country album that came out when i was online um and kind of in contact with a big country online community. I mean, was that the case with you as well? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, I joined the mailing list after the Buffalo Skinners was out, but that was after. So it was just the newest album. So Wild Long Face was the first wait. And uh, uh, I never really had any big country friends. So I got in touch with people online and that was a very interesting experience to wait for an album and then hear the first reports trickle in and people's first uh, comments and opinions, really. And, yeah, uh, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, without having heard it myself. So, so that was interesting. So obviously the first one was the single, I'm Not Ashamed, and I'm, I'm going to get into that when we get to that single. And then the album came, and uh, just being able to express opinions and really do the dissection that I've always done, and finally you could do it with someone for Big Country, that was pretty amazing. Yeah, it was an exciting time, and and just to we don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about contextualizing this album because we've got so many songs to talk about, but we've got to talk about it a little bit. So, just to sort of put this into context with Big Country's career at the time, I mean, this album is coming off what many people consider to be one of Big Country's best albums ever. Maybe some people probably even have it as their top Big Country album. I don't know, but um, it, certainly it's in like the top three or or four for a lot of people and that's the buffalo skinners so buffalo skinners was um a huge return to form for the band and it looked like big country was really primed to make some sort of comeback i mean it was really interesting to see what they would come up with next and and we get why the long face i remember when we were talking with bruce you were asking him when we got to this album what the band's uh thoughts were as far as how they were going to blend in with the new type of music that was becoming popular at the time i mean mm. we were kind of we were kind of into the grunge movement already and then in the uk especially they had this phenomenon called brit pop with yeah. bands like oasis and blur and and um so it was going to be interesting to see where big country fit in with all that 
Yeah, I think far bigger bands than Big Country from the 80s struggled in the 90s and struggled to a bigger degree. I mean, if you look at uh, the plain facts, I mean, White Long Face is Big Country's seventh studio album, and it's a summer album. It was released on the 12th of July, 1995. And it really didn't set any charts on fire. I think it got to number 48 in the UK. But if you look at what happened, and we got to just face up to it, they were out of touch with really the popular music of the day. Um, They were not sort of young and pretty and uh, London-based enough to really set the the charts on fire. Or that mean, gritty, like thug-like oasis thing going for them either so right. uh, so i think 48 is actually not that bad uh, if you look at the big picture i think bands when they reach a certain phase of their career um, their chart success days are over they ride a different more long-term uh, wave which is more you have your fan base uh, make sure you don't lose it basically satisfy your fan base and you might win some stuff over that's a long trickling thing and word of mouth and uh, it operates different than chart success. So I think yeah. for a long face, it was important that all the the foundation put down with the Buffalo Skinners uh, was kept and maintained and maybe grown from that even. That the people got an album that they liked and kept the band's name alive and just to have it grow. Kind of similar to what they're doing for the journey, which is definitely not our chart-based approach. That is much more a grassroots thing. And obviously, they didn't tour any territory for three months solid like they did for the U.S. for the journey. But uh, <laughs> right. they, they did tour quite solidly. And if you look at the profile of the gigs, they were uh, opening for the Rolling Stones uh, on the Rolling Stones European tour, which is pretty major. So yeah. they definitely did a lot of right things and uh, kept their name up there. And I know in certain markets, like uh, Germany especially, and um, some of the continental mainland Europe, they did pretty well. And uh, I don't have the German chart number here. I wouldn't be surprised if they did pretty good business there for, with this album. What was always interesting to me and, and what really I never got a good answer for until we spoke to Bruce was why Big Country switched record companies at the time. Because they they ended their time with uh, Chrysalis or Compulsion. I never uh, – they're different names for the same company basically depending on what territory it was in. I never really understood what was what. But uh, mm. – but Chris Briggs Record Company, they um they ended ties with him and they went to this record label called Castle. Um also had different names too. It was also called Transatlantic and Castle Records. And the interesting thing about Castle Records is that they were a record company apparently that that really dealt with bands that they thought had a solid following, could sell records internationally, and who would tour and get people to buy consistently buy their back catalog. So that's kind of why Castle signed them. They really didn't sign them thinking that Big Country was going to have incredible chart success. There was a guy named Dougie Dudgeon. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that last name. It almost sounds like Dungeon, but it's it's Dougie Dudgeon or something like that. And if you read the Alan Glenn book, there are a lot of interesting interviews with him where he's talking about this period with Big Country. And he basically confirms that Castle was a a kind of a a rinky-dink label, basically, and he says they they were not a traditional record label. They were a label that didn't have any A&R people. They didn't have any artist development type of people. They really, in his words, they were just an, an, a label full of salesmen. And what they liked to do is sign bands that had this international following, a very loyal following that, that was selling records and, and uh, was touring. But getting back to why Big Country left, um, 
I never really realized it, but apparently they just had that two album deal with uh, Chrysalis, which made up for uh, the Buffalo Skinners and then without the aid of a safety net. And then after those two albums were released, Chris Briggs had the um, option of re-signing them. And when we spoke to Bruce, he basically said to us that Chris Briggs was not happy with the demos for Why the Long Face that the band was sending his way, and he, he thought they needed more work. And he wanted them to go back and work on these songs some more. And Big Country didn't want to do that. They apparently wanted to release the album. They wanted to get some income coming in. And whether that was Ian Grant's decision or the or a mutual decision for the band, we're not sure. But I guess they felt more strongly about the songs or just really felt like they wanted to go somewhere else. And so they went with Castle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a step down in a way, you would think, because this label really was not a, a name label. It wasn't very well known. And I think they had some division in America that released it called Pure Records or something like that. But... Um, there were a lot of, you know, what's so sad about <laughs> so many of these big country releases is that there were so many, there always seems to be some sort of fiasco re- regarding some of their early single releases or some kind of problem. And we got that right out of the box with this album when they released I'm Not Ashamed. And you probably know more about this than me because I saw you talking about this on the on the, the um, website and I had to go back and refresh my memory about what happened, but... It was something to do, to do with there being a, a screw up in the in the release dates, and they ended up selling a version of there were two versions of the I'm Not Ashamed single, and they were one was supposed to come out one week, and the other was supposed to come out the following week, and they ended up both coming out at the same time. And do you, do you know exactly what happened there? It kind of screwed up the charting of that of that single. Well, you you summarized it quite neatly there. It was released one week early. So it okay. just uh, instead of removing sales, they just disqualified it entirely. So it uh, was yet another singles cock-up. <laughs> yeah, you can say, you know, how much airplay did the single have? How high would it have gotten? I think it was worse with the Fragile Thing, to be honest, because that was really yeah. something they were pumped to do. They had, at least for the UK, the Eddie Reader connection. They had a lot of things that they were betting on. And then the folds hit them. And it folded, literally. And that was a better song anyway, in my opinion, from yeah, the thing. But. I, I agree totally. But uh, it's kind of sickening to have the same thing happen to you. And, you know, the folds thing, I don't actually blame them. But uh, I'm not ashamed. That was definitely a management cock-up. Yeah, and it's funny because I, I went back and read um, the Country Club issue a little while ago before we spoke just to get a feel for what was going on at the time. And they talk about it in that Country Club issue. And uh, if you're looking for that, by the way, you can find all of the Country Club issues on John Gouveia's site, bigcountryinfo.com. They're all in there in PDF format. But they were speaking about it, and um, Jan, the woman who used to run the Country Club, was was writing about it. And she's, she estimated that that screw-up cost them possibly 30 chart places up to – she said probably between like 15 to 30 chart places with I'm Not Ashamed. And – I think I think that single charted in the somewhere in the 60s, like 69. I think I'm looking at it right now. 60, yeah, it was 69. So if you if you go with the maximum of what you think it cost them, that would have put them in the top 40. Which I don't know if that. I think I think in the UK top 30 is what gets you on top of the pops. Yeah. So it still wouldn't have gotten them there, but still it would have been a top 40 single possibly, and that that might have helped. But the funny thing, another funny thing about this label is that the, the, the single screw-ups didn't end there. 
because the next single they released was You Dreamer. And that had its own little story that of of controversy that was that's really kind of embarrassing, really more more for the record company than anyone else. But I don't know how familiar you are with this. If you read that book, you would be. But there was um, a practice that was going on back then that was labeled chart rigging, and apparently there used to be. I think it says the, in that book that there used to be 250 shops in the UK that if the sales of a single in those shops would count toward the charts. So what record companies would often do would be to hire people to go buy buy as many of the these singles as they could for a band that they had. They would they would hire people to go up and down the the country to all these shops and buy multiple copies of the single in the hopes that they could force that single into the charts. Um, so even even though they were paying these people to do that, and of course paying for the singles, they they figured that if they could get a, a single in the charts initially, that would spur sales of an album, maybe get a second single, et cetera, et cetera, and they figured that it was worth it. Well, apparently Castle did this with uh, with Big Country because they got fined along with another record company for doing this, this chart rigging process, and apparently they were investigated and there was some flat in England where they found, I think it, it said like 3,500 copies of various singles, including the You Dreamer single by Big Country that, that some... <laughs> shady operation had had stored in this apartment and they had people going all around buying these singles to try to force it into the charts and um the, the record company ended up having to pay i think a 30 30 000 pound fine for this and what was even more embarrassing is that even despite all of that effort the uh, the single still didn't chart it only reached number 48 it's just kind of depressing and sad <laughs> so it's like uh, then again, there's a lot of big country and cardboard boxes in my apartment, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think we've set it up pretty nicely. I will just probably add one last tidbit here that this was a very productive time for the band. Mm. And the album contains the most songs of any big country album thus far, 14 songs. And on top of those 14 songs, the band also continued the tradition of releasing multiple B-sides. So... I did the counting. We have 15 B-sides in various forms related to Wide and Long Face. So if you add that to the 14 tracks on the album, that's 29 tracks from the Wide and Long Face era. 15 B-sides. Wow. 15 B-sides. Yeah. And if you if you do the tally, you have eight brand new songs. Monday, Tuesday, Girl, Crazy Times, Ice Cream Smile, Magic in Your Eyes, Bayanka, Hardy Mountain, Golden Boy, and California in the Winter. That's eight. Then you have four reworkings, which is... Uh, one in a Million First Visit, Acoustic Versions of Big Country, Cool Version of Blue and Green Planet, and All Go Together Acoustic. And then you have three covers. I'm 18 Vicious on the road again. So that's 15 mm-hmm. plus 14, 29 songs. I don't know if they have a more productive time. I think Driving to Damascus might rival it because by then they opened the vault to the sort of merchandising website outlet. So, right. uh, we, so we got the Indescud. We got... Um, yeah, all these website releases. So that might actually rival it because just they had that outlet and they could just push little bits out there for, for fans. So, uh, But still, that's pretty impressive. So uh, we'll focus on the 14 songs. And we said we'll do this a three-parter. I think we have to be fairly efficient to manage to fit in into three episodes. Yeah. Uh, so before we start on um, on the first song... Wide Long Face is very much Stewart's album, at least if you look at the writer credits. I think Stewart has a sole writing credit for 10 of the songs, so he wrote the lion's share of them on his own. Um, 
he wrote one with Tony, one with Bruce, and the last two on the album are group compositions. So that's fairly interesting. And uh, as we look at some of these lyrics, some of them seem to be very like Big Country's answer to Fleetwood Mac's rumors, if you will. There's mm-hmm. uh, there's really a lot of what was going on in Stewart's life specifically, and maybe just around the band in general. Yeah, so, no doubt. Yeah, there's there's a lot to to read into this. So that. Um, that alone makes this an interesting album. It does not necessarily always mean interesting songs overall, right. but um, but uh, it's it's fairly interesting. So uh, uh, there is this view that Wide Long Face is in many ways a more straightforward album, certainly more straightforward than the classic ones. So uh, it's uh, I, I know a lot of people feel, especially lyrically, this album is a lot more straightforward or direct, if you will. Uh, so uh, I actually found a quote where... Uh, Stuart commented on his lyric writing in an interview from about the time. And this was conducted by Christian Jennings, who is a good friend of the podcast. And he asked him about the unusual depth of meaning that Stuart would usually have in his lyrics and how this over time changed. And if he felt any pressure to keep writing lyrics in that vein with the depth or that, that kind of context. So Stuart said about that. Quote, I don't feel any kind of responsibility other than to myself to write weighty lyrics. In fact, I sometimes wish I could learn to write in a simpler form to be more direct, and I'm going to be experimenting with this, unquote. Mm-hmm. I and, remember that. Yeah, and we definitely see that experimentation on Wide Long Face. A lot of the lyrics are not just direct and straight in your face, but especially showing everyday situations and problems like cars rusting in people's yards, songs about feeling sad and comforting yourself with chocolate cake, etc. So <laughs> we will get to all of this in due course, but uh, it's, uh, it's certainly an approach that I, I think it's fair to say it's a calculated experimentation from Stuart. Uh, he wanted to try this and, uh, and he tried it on wide and long face. Yeah, uh, there's there are so many different styles on this album too. I mean, it, the musical styles. I mean, there's there's sounds that are almost metal sounding in some ways. There are, there's definite um, indicators of the Nashville type of sound that the band would would steer toward, or especially Stewart would steer toward. There's a lot of tra- traditional big country sound. So whatever you think about the songs on the album, and we'll be talking about that obviously. There's certainly there's there's no shortage of of different themes and different styles here and um that that's that is one of the things that makes this period so interesting to talk about and it's it's an interesting album um just to set into context my feelings on this album before we start talking about it i mean not saying exactly but just to to give some context for me this album is i mean we often hear people talk about an album and call it a grower an album that they don't like so much at first and it grows on them over time i had that experience with the seer I didn't like the Seer that much when I first heard it. I was expecting Steel Town Part Two, and and it was different. But but after about three or four listens, I began to love it, and now it's one of my favorites. Why the Long Face was for me just the opposite. It, for me, Why the Long Face is a shrinker. It's an album that I loved on first listen, and the more I've listened to it over the years, the less I've I've liked it. As the less I I like it as a whole. There's so, still some things I like and love, but uh, for me, it's 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 a shrinker album. It's it's one of those albums that it's interesting to listen to, but as the songs go, they've kind of, uh, a lot of them have kind of lost their luster for me over the years. I will pursue you, and I will find you. I, I still want to stress that I say that within the context of big country. So it's like, even even what big country's lesser output, in my opinion, 
is still greater than most bands' best output. So that's just my thought about the album going into it. And um, I guess the best place to begin would just be, uh, let's just, if you're, if you're ready to start with the, each song, why don't we just jump into You Dreamer? Yeah, just like uh, just like we talked about in this introduction, Wide Long Face is an album that takes a lot of flack for songs having very down-to-earth and real topics, very unextravagant in its uh, poetry. Uh, there's no spiritual enlightenment in these lyrics. There's no exploration, no inspiration to look for the best in man. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, it's a very peculiar song. Uh, it's a description of people being stuck in a rut and unable to really get themselves out of that rut. So the, the chorus is particularly interesting in that regard. It almost points the finger. Look at you. Look how bad things turned out. Uh, <laughs> I, I, kind of, I can kind of hear that kid from The Simpsons chiming in in the background. <laughs> it's, 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 it's kind of like that. There's, there's it is. No, it's mocking almost. It's almost mocking. It, it point, look at you. You dreamer. Is this the way you figure your life was going to turn out? And that separates this song quite a bit from previous songs about people stuck in a rut because that in itself is not new to big country. Uh, songs like Steel Town, for example. It's, uh, it's you know, sad fates of people. But this is more concrete. It's about very specific fates, specific people, specific families, and they're just saying, look at you. So that that in itself really is an interesting experiment. Mm-hmm. If you look at... Um, in Country Club issue 34, Stuart had a comment on You Dreamer, where he said, this one's inspired by those people who always make plans, but whose plans nev- never just seem to work out. The ones who never get a break. You could say it's about always being in the shadowed area of the garden instead of the sunny bit in the middle. So again, those, that description of the song is almost more poetic than the lyrics themselves, mentioning the garden uh, one of his topics, many songs mentions, <laughs> right. mentions the garden. So, uh, yeah, someone was young and idealistic here, but the chorus alludes to this person having plans for her life, what's going to turn out, making grand plans for a better world, and then what happened. So the, the examples are extremely humdrum. They're like the storekeeper of a rundown bug-ridden store without any customers. <laughs> it's really sad. Uh, <laughs> people who live in squalor, watching TV amid empty pizza boxes and prescription pills. They're very yep. sad, indeed. And then the final chorus or final verse, you have the junkie dad and his family. So it's um, it's pretty real examples. It's uh, I don't think he's meaning it as piss-take examples. It's uh, it's quite sad examples when you think of it. But there, there's one point where it just gets too much, and that's the towards the end. There's a line saying, the tank is empty, a wheel came off, which is a line I picked up more in the later years. And if you think about it, it's just an over-the-top description for being stuck. Like, not only did they run out of gas, but the wheels are starting to fall off as well. It's just so ridiculous, it gets funny. <laughs> but uh, the standout line in the song is, of course, the one that follows shortly after. How can no one find me if no one knows I'm lost? That's the one line that people have used as, as examples, and it's the line that deserves to be lifted. It's one of those classic Stuart Adamson quotable lines. Yes, it is. Um, they repeat it two times on the album. How can no one find me if no one knows I'm lost? Hey, if no one knows I'm lost. When they play the song live, they actually repeat that four times over for emphasis. Yeah. I can't someone 
<laughs> and I love that. Yeah, it's it's cool. It's um, it may be uh, uh, I don't know if punchline is an appropriate term, but that line sums up a central theme or the central issue of the song. And I don't have a problem with them doing that live, but I'm kind of glad they didn't go that far in the studio. Twice is enough, I think, in the studio. But um, it would be to the point where they spoon feed us the punchline. Like, see what we said here? Did you miss it? It's a great yeah, right, line. Right. Yeah, we, we kind of get it on our own. So I think um, I think that's perfect, the way they did it on the album and the way they emphasize it a little bit extra live. So, so that's fine. So, um, yeah, the song is not really optimistic. That is not the new thing for Big Country. But the thing is, there's no silver lining here. So at best, the song is a warning to the young idealist to be prepared for the scenarios that song mentioned. Be prepared that the plans you make may not play out like you think. Uh, but ultimately, it feels more like a report of things after they went wrong. And it's not really a warning. It's more like an, oh, <laughs> there you go. So, uh, so that's really the lyrics. And musically, the song is very melodic, extremely hummable which is the big thing for me on this album in general. I regard this as one of their more melodic albums. So the main melody is very easy, very hummable, and backed up by some really incredible playing. Uh, a lot of songs have bass parts that just dance out at you, or lead breaks that just come out here and there. So this is not one of the songs that has the most of that. It's more of a groove song. But the band is definitely gelling here as a unit, I think, and getting down a bit. I can see... Um, why they thought of this as a potential single from a musical standpoint. And uh, just to, uh, I'm not going to go into the demos for each song because I will have the same comments for almost all of them, but just to use the demo for You Dreamer as an example, and this will be a joint comment, I think, for every song and every demo. Uh, I vastly prefer the album versions, but uh, I kind of like the demos too. And I think the performances on the album are overall more energetic a bit more up-tempo. The playing is yeah. great. They beefed it up. On the demos, it's often similar. They kind of... The structure of the song was rarely altered, but the demos lack the spark of doing the take, if you will. So they are slightly slower, a little less energy, more straightforward, in a lower key, which usually isn't good for the vocal intensity. But it's faithful versions. So all of this is definitely true for you, Dreamer. So there's differences here and there, but not anything worth pointing out so um, overall the, compared to the demos they do a great job of just pumping up the intensity of the album versions and lifting it to the key where the singing feels right and the delivery more passionate so so that is good uh, the arrangements clearly worked on instrumentation added and highlighted there's the odd bass line nice guitar fill but I think that the main thing for this album which lacks also on the demos is the harmony vocals I think as far as harmony vocals go, Wide Long Face might be one of Big Country's best. There are so many songs with just wonderful vocals. And I know we spoke about one songs from General Lee Sessions in the past where you pointed out the same thing, which is uh, Our Mystery Has Gone, Magic in Your Eyes, and mm -hmm. the harmony vocals on that song. So it's, it's no... Um, it's not coincidental, I think, that that song came from these sessions. I think the harmony vocals overall on most of the songs on this album are just fantastic. You know there's a house on Victory Street Where no one wipes their feet A car is rusting in the yard And it's a lot of Mark's harmonies, too, that really come to the forefront in this album. I mean, you really hear that high-pitched Mark Brzecki's uh, high-pitched voc high vocal sound on this album a lot throughout almost all of these songs. Yeah, definitely. 
It's kind of like uh, they discovered that he could sing finally and put him on everything. Yeah, which which is which is not always good from my perspective. I mean, that that's I would certainly agree. Not to jump off too much of a tangent here, but uh, they definitely did more work on backing vocals on this album than any big country album in the past. And, and I like it in a lot of places. I think You Dreamer is one of the places where it works well. Other places, I, I I'm not really that fond of of the style of backing vocals that they do and and that high Mark Brzecki register that he that he sings on. Sometimes I just think it sounds too. I don't know. It sounds too pop, popish to me, or something. But uh, we'll talk about that with each individual song. But sure, it, it definitely works for me on you, Dreamer. Right. Yeah. So the last thing I'll say, because I've spoken quite a bit about this song, is that you, Dreamer, is a song I really liked a lot to begin with. But this is one of those few cases I must say where I kind of agree with you that over time it has deteriorated a bit. It wore itself out, out if you will. So. Part of that might be my own fault because I was involved with doing a cover version of this song. And we actually struggle quite a bit with the tempo. The tempo mm. of this song is it's not plodding, it's not slow, it's not fast. It's kind of like in a strange mid area where the tempo also drives itself. So we struggled to get that right, spent a long time on it and worked so much on this song that I just couldn't hear it again for a long time. <laughs> but, but listening to it now in preparation for this episode, I found I quite liked it again. So maybe there's just a second dawning for You Dreamer. Yeah, it could be. Uh, th- to me, this is uh, this is the standout track on the album, the, the opening track, and it happens to be my favorite track. Um, I, I think it's, I mean, there's not a whole lot to add to what you've said. I, I will say this, that what's interesting to me is that this was meant to be the first single when the when the record company was putting together their their list of singles and working with the band to come up with what they wanted to put forth, it was going to be You Dreamer. And apparently, according to the Country Club um, magazine that we've both referenced so far in this episode, they said that somebody at Radio One persuaded the uh, the person who was plugging this album. They persuaded them to change it to I'm Not Ashamed, which I guess was another song that they were they were going to release as a single, but not necessarily the first single. Mm-hmm. And the guy at Radio One's reasoning for this was that You Dreamer sounded, in his words, too much like Big Country. So, which, which is, again, sad, and it gives you an idea of the kind of crap that they had to deal with whenever they were trying to put something out and, and the, the bad uh, just misperception or perception that, that these idiots had about Big Country, but – Ironically, that's one. Of, that's why probably why I love the song so much. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget putting that CD on for the first time. Once I got it in my grubby little hands, it finally came in the mail, and I I put that CD in. And hearing that opening riff for "You Dreamer" was just uh, it was just awesome. It, it just pummeled me, and I love that riff to this day. It's it's um it's a classic big country riff, I, and Stewart's even kind of used variations of it in some other lesser songs i think i can't think of what they are offhand but um it's it's a great riff Uh, when i heard them play this live in nashville they they played this as their sound check and it really brought it home to me just how powerful it was because it was such a such a sharp um cutting sound and it, it was just a great a great just intense song live and uh it comes i think that comes through on the album Again, like you said, though, it's it's strange. It's like some of these other songs that we've talked about in the past. It's, it is a very melodic song, and you want to sing along to it, and you find yourself singing along to these lyrics that, as you say, are just so dark and so depressing, and and it really does have that mocking feel to it, which is very strange coming from Stewart. And and looking back, you can kind of see 
maybe the maybe the tank that was getting empty and the wheel that was coming off was was something that was happening in his life because I know that this this time period is coinciding not to get too personal with what he was going through and I don't even know all the details um, obviously but I know that he was going through a marriage breakup at the time I don't know if he had actually gotten divorced at this time or or was in the process of it he had lived in America. I think in 94 and then written a lot of songs in America and then moved back. But I mean, we, we get a sense of that too, even on Buffalo Skinners with uh, seven waves and some of those lyrics. So I think a lot of turmoil was happening in Stewart's life around this time. And I think this song really kind of, even though he's singing about other people, I think it really reflects some of the things that he was going through. And, and especially that line, how can someone find me if no one knows I'm lost? I mean, it's such a spine tingling moment in the song. And it's it it kind of makes me feel that way even now listening to it. And I'm wondering if Stewart was thinking that to some degree concerning himself or his his career. I don't know, but it's it's definitely not a song that you're going to listen to and dissect and feel like you used to feel with the old big country songs of old that really inspired you and lifted you up. In fact, I can think of one fan that I remember who just would never listen to the song. He said he would never listen to it because it was just too depressing and he didn't want to hear it. <laughs> and uh, so it's – yeah, so it ha- I guess it had that effect on people. Um, I still think it's a great song. I mean some of the best artwork is is done in this vein and I think even though it's a departure from the wide-eyed optim- – well, Stuart was never a wide-eyed optimist. But even though it's a departure from that kind of silver lining and hope amidst uh, – darkness type of stuff that Stuart would do in the past there there really is no hope here <laughs> um it's still a very interesting and powerful song to me i love the guitar parts i love the little single note that's played throughout the chorus great drumming it's a great return to form for from for Mark Brzecki. And let's remember, we haven't even mentioned this, it, even though Mark had played on the Buffalo Skinners tour, this was his return to the fold on a big country studio album. And I think we get a lot more of Mark's traditional flourishes and big country sound than we did on No Place Like Home. So yeah, I remember hearing this and feeling really, really uh, optimistic about the rest of the album and, and uh, thinking this was a great, a great start. And I still think it's a great, great track. So for me, mm. it's it's my number one. This is my number one tune on the album. So yeah, this just sets the tone. <laughs> We're not going to agree on a lot. Uh, I think um, it's it, it's definitely a very likable song, and it's definitely the better single. Uh, but it's not as endurable to me as some of the other songs on the album. And I guess the differentiator is whether I connect with the song. So for you, Dreamer, I think it's hummable. It's 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 very good. But I don't connect with it personally. And I guess yeah. a lot of the reason why I like this album so much is that at least half of the songs on this album actually has a very personal relevance. It's not just nice poetry or whatever you call it. It's something that I connected with and that actually... It has become something more personal. So I think that has a large part to play with my love for this album. So sadly, this song is not part of that. So it is in the latter half, and it's my number 12. Okay. Well, good. Well, then our our, our uh, assumptions about the differentiations between our opinions are, are at least holding true for the first song. Yeah. <laughs> are you not going to call me insane or deranged or anything? No, not yet.
All right, so let's move on to Message of Love. Um, this is the, a crucial song for me when thinking about how I feel about this album because this song, and I said this to you privately, this, this song is the poster child of the album for me as a whole. And when we spoke with Bruce, he sort of agreed that he didn't think the songs were really fleshed out enough, that they, they, they could have they could have taken some more time and worked on these songs more and and done some more with them and instead of i don't i don't want to say rushing them out because i don't necessarily think think that's what happened although some of these songs to me do have that sense to them but this song to me is is a perfect example of how i feel about the majority of the album with a few exceptions here and there and that is a song that has some awesome moments but overall does not deliver and it starts out with incredible promise for me. Uh, the, the, the verses of this song, I think, are stellar. The groove that this song creates is awesome. I love the, um, I, I love the drumming, especially in this. I love the bass playing. Tony's got some just wicked bass lines in the in the verses, like this high, you know, this great Tony stuff. It's like really classic Tony Butler bass playing and. I also love the lyrics as it, as the song starts out. It's a really interesting commentary on the end of the Cold War and, and the ramifications of that. And it's got some very clever lyrics. One of my favorites uh, is really at the beginning of the song. Ex-spy in a square in Berlin got holes in his knife-tipped shoes. I think that's just an incredible line. Very, very uh, colorful line. Great imagery and it says everything right there, you know, about what he's trying to say in the song. You know, we got this this spy who's out of work because the Cold War's ended. And he's got holes in his knife-tipped shoes, and he's out on the streets selling weapons to people, whoever whoever will buy them. So when I first heard that and this um in this song and that the verses kicked in and everything, I thought, oh, this is awesome. But the song for me really deteriorates as it gets to the bridge, the bridge, the well, what we would call the pre-chorus and then the chorus. Um, this is one of those songs that's got that kind of uh, really hard, tinny type of guitar sound, which I like, and it's almost kind of a metal sound in some respects, which is which is fine. But they also go into structurally like more. I think I think this album goes into some more blues-based rock type of stuff, and I get that on this song and that pre-chorus where it's like a working illustration of the golden rule. Whoever ends up with the gold will make the rules and just kind of the chord progressions there are not what I would consider something that would be big country or, or at least what I want from big country. Let's put it that way. Cause this is, this is a selfish, uh, a selfish proclamation about what I want from big country, but other people might have a differing opinion, but I don't, I never like when big country goes the, the classic rock route so much. They can do it well. They sound great. They're great musicians, but you know, I selfishly always wanted more of that Celtic feel and I get it in the verses, but then the chorus just, the chorus, this song falls apart. I'll just say it like that. For one thing, the lyric is really trite. It's very cliche it it doesn't sit well at all with the with the really thoughtful lyrics of the verses. I mean, we need a message of love, one thing that we can be sure of. It, that definitely sounds like something that was written without even thinking. I mean, as much grief as Mike has gotten for some of the lyrics that he's done, I mean, if if Mike had written that lyric on the journey, he would be blasted for it. Yeah, it, it's just not a good lyric. And the the music there of the chorus too, I think is kind of lame and 
I, I never liked the the chord progression and the demo the, the one thing this the this music on the chorus does it it goes to that really weird chord um and do you know what I'm talking about it's like da 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 something that we can be sure it and I never liked that chord that it went to, but at least I could tolerate it because it was only once during the chorus. If you listen to the demo of this song, yeah, it, hit, it hits that chord every time, and it's just like painful to listen to. Yeah, so I, I have a really kind of a love-hate relationship with this song. I, I love the verses. I mean, and I really honestly love them i mean i i sometimes i think i gotta hear message of love just for those verses and i crank that part up and there's a great little drum fill that mark does too coming out of one of the verses that's really awesome he just goes into like this double kick stuff and it goes into the next verse it's fantastic but every time it gets to that chorus i'm just like ugh, you know and it's got this guitar line that's really kind of dull it's, I don't like it, basically. So what we've got are a tale of two songs here with this one song. We've got a portion that I love, a portion that I I really don't like much at all. And to me, it makes for a mediocre song. So I think there are some great elements to this tune. But um, I I, I like the the lyrical uh, direction that he's going. It's a really interesting topic for a song. But... It just almost seems like when he came to the chorus, he, he just threw something together at the last minute, and it it's, it renders the song really toothless for me. So this one's this one would be lower on my list. I, I give it some good marks for those verses, though. They that raises it up somewhat, but uh, this this is uh, kind of toward the middle of the road for me. Yeah, I think musically the song underpins the lyrics very well, which is one of the strengths of the song. Uh, I think the verses have that slightly uneasy, almost sinister feel. Whereas the chorus is, has the more heartfelt message and gets more melodic. So that just um, fits in with your feeling those as very different uh, as well. So uh, it's a very well-played song. I think you need look no further than the intro for that cool bass line that you already mentioned, thundering over the riff. And then you have the screeching guitar lines in the second part of the verse, too, where they go into that wah, 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 wah. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. I love that. That actually always reminded me of the skids somehow, for some reason. Yeah, there's little throwbacks, I think. But uh, I, I, I listened to the demo, and then I started thinking, hmm, this is interesting, because does this instrumentation get in the way of the song? And this is not really a criticism. It's more an observation that I, don't, I didn't think of this until I listened to the demo, where you, when you get to the song on the album and the bass line starts, don't you always hum the bass line? It's all about the bass line. So you hum the bass yeah. line, and the rest kind of fades into the background. And then the second part of the verse, when you get to those guitars, then you hum those. You hum, wah, 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 wah. So <laughs> it's really strange <laughs> how that works. And then, then I listen to the demo, and that bass line is there, but it's mixed more evenly. So you do hear the guitars, and you do hear those things going on. And the second part of the first verse you don't have those screeching guitars so again the song just comes out and i thought wow you know i i didn't realize how you know overpowering the bass riff was like i always hummed that that became the song at that point and then those screeching guitars became the song at that point so that was very interesting to to listen to the demo we 
There's a lot of interesting arrangements here. Obviously, you mentioned some of them. I think the song goes through many movements. Uh, one of my favorite breaks is before the final verse, when the song builds up into this great crescendo with a guitar break just before the final repeats of the chorus. I think that is absolutely fantastic. And the dynamics of the song is great too. There's a point where it slows down before it kicks back into it. And that is just fantastic. So it it lives and breathes a bit. I really underestimated the lyrics at first. I think a lot of that comes back to the title. And I placed this song because of the title along some of the more naive things that Stuart would write from time to time. So in the past, we have stuff like give us peace in our time and let it be a time for peace, let it be the time for right. So on the surface, this seemed like it followed that with we need a message of love, something that we can be sure of. That, that, um, it just struck me as exactly the same territory, but it really does run a lot deeper than that. And uh, there's no doubt the song is about Germany and more precise, the period after the wall came down in Berlin and some of the challenges that came with the German unification. Now, uh, I've never really lived in Germany, but I visited it many times, both before and after unification. So I never went to the areas of the old East Germany until after when people could freely go there. And uh, I did see some of the things referred to in the song that I'm sure Stuart saw as well when, when the band visited this thing. And I think those who were active on Marcus Schuller's old mailing list in the 90s and John Underwood's The Crossing chat room might remember Kerstin from Germany. And the reason I bring her up now is that I actually spent hours discussing the topic of the German unification with her, and we definitely touched on this song as part of that. So she would tell me firsthand about how this song really hit home for her, and she would point out that while on the surface, the the unification of East and West Germany seemed like one big party, at least at first, uh, there were actually big costs that would quickly become apparent. And the truth is, this unification was socially hard, it was economically hard, and based on what I was told at the time, there was a price to pay for everybody. So the problem wasn't really solved when the wall came down. That was the start of needing to figure things out. And that brings us to this song. And I feel Stuart are saying things in this song that relate to all of this and things that possibly needs to be said. Um, More precisely, a lot of things disappeared when the wall came down. Like there were rumors of various types of weapons, of arsenals, of rockets, of tanks, etc. that would be stashed in the East Germany territory. But they found a lot less of those things than expected. So what happened with those things? And uh, did East Germany really have spies? Uh, Did they have a secret police? Uh, A lot less of those kind of people were found than you'd think. So at the same time, after the unification, we had this region who needed an strong influx of funds, desperately. And there definitely was a black market side industry, if you will, uh, on things from the old world, especially these things that weren't always accounted for. So the song mentions people being offered missile codes and warheads and even an old T-72, which is a Russian tank. The T-72 was used by the former East German National People's Army. And the song also mentions Checkpoint Charlie, which I believe most people know. That's the main gate between East and West Berlin during the Cold War. Uh, That is now the site of a business complex. 
and it's also a bit of a tourist trap. Like tourists are taken there because, of course, you have to see the old sites, and there's almost an industry around showing the sites of the old world, so to speak. And uh, the mention of selling pieces of the wall, that's pretty spot on. That's an industry. And you have to question how much wall there was. How many people have pieces of the wall at home as souvenirs? I know, I know we have pieces of the wall in our house here, allegedly, because if you put all these assumed bits of the wall together, I think you have many walls, many more than there actually were. So the song definitely taps into all these things. And the more I learned about the situation in Germany after the wall fell, after the unification, the more weight this song would get. And in many ways, it seems to follow up on a theme that was started in Eastworld with uh, the reference to capitalism and how people with the money rule everything and call the shots. Uh, when in reality, the unification should be about brother meets brother. Hence the cry for a message of love in the situation. Like, let the unification be about the right things, not about capitalism. Let's not exchange one extreme for another. So um, I think this is a great example of Stuart's ability to write about places beside his own country. And given that the band had and still had a big fan base in Germany, I thought it was great that he kind of made one directly for those people about their situation. So, Well, and the uh, album did very well in Germany, too, from what I understand. So, yeah, I'm sure that mm-hmm. did resonate with them quite a bit. Yeah, and, definitely. Uh, and, and it's interesting you bring up Eastworld, because I always thought some of those guitar breaks really remind me of, of stuff that came right out of Eastworld. So it's, uh, mm. especially those little breaks in the, the in the middle, like kind of separating the verses, the yeah, it sounds like something right out of Eastworld to me. Yeah, so I think that has exhausted what we could say about this song in uh, within the realm of three episodes and thirteen other songs. So I'll, I'll just I'll just say that I rank it as number eight. <laughs> That's exactly where I have it, number eight. I'm not ashamed. Okay. We'll start with uh, Stuart's comment from Country Club, issue 34, one more time. Short and sweet. It's all about never having regrets over anything you have said or done. So I, I think we could have figured that out ourselves. So <laughs> that, that's not the biggest insight he ever gave us of his songs. But uh, like we mentioned, this was the first single of the album. Uh, this was the first time I had the communal experience of waiting for new big country material with other fans. And something that always struck me, and I I don't know if you're like me, there, there are certain things we discussed and they stick with me. And one thing that stuck with me for this song was the early reports told us that this song sounds like big country and it was quote unquote instantly likable. So when I first got my hand on a single, I didn't agree with either. I didn't find this song instantly likable. And a you lot said of that, that, do you remember? No, I don't. <laughs> Otherwise, he would be chastised publicly in, in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the reason I didn't find it instantly likable was because of the second thing, that it didn't sound a lot like Big Country, which was the other claim. So I, didn't, I, I really scratched my head about this one. So I didn't dislike it. But this song actually made me wonder and vary a bit about the album that was coming. Uh, today, I probably like the song better than I ever did back in the 90s or even the noughties, but I still regard it as one of the weaker ones on the album, and the reasons for those are musical. I think the lyrics are definitely very interesting, much more interesting than the music, and I'll start with the lyrics. Uh, this feels like a very personal song to Stuart, 
Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily meant to be autobiographical. We can't assume anything, but it feels like it is. And my take on the song is that it's about two people who married young, or at least before their personalities were formed. And later, when these people grew up and their personalities had formed, they were no longer the same people. So you have things like, we're tied together by a simple little pledge before we know the trust it takes to walk up to that edge. They got married early. And it it didn't seem like something that was meant to last. Like you have lines like, we built a house of cards where the wind has always blown. You know, that sounds like it's really rock solid there. And also we built our little garden on a bed of sand and stones. You know, nothing grows in sand. So that's also doomed from the outset. So he also speaks of trying on different faces and talking in other voices and later concludes, it took too long for me to be who I am. So uh, my take is, he grew up, they grew up, and finally found out who they are. And whether that they still would have made the choice to be together is really, I think, the open questioner of the song. So I think a lot of people do grow up and change. And I'm not sure how many people can say they are the same person at 40, for example, as when they were 18. Uh, it can be a big change. It doesn't have to be a change. But sometimes it is. And I think the speaker in the song, the voice of this song, finds that there is a change, for, for him at least. So if you look at this from an autobiographical point of view, I don't really want to go to town, but Stuart got married during the early days with his kids, and he was going through the aftermath of splitting with his wife at the time the song was written. So it's very easy to connect the dots and really go to town with analyzing everything in this song and some other songs in light of that. But um, of course, the song could have other meanings, maybe several at the same time. And I always thought it could be about the band in the way that the band are not ashamed of anything they've done musically. They stand by their choices. Uh, it could be personally. Uh, the lyrics say, I know I stayed when I could have gone. And that could have been the marriage so far. It could also be the band. And it kind of makes me think of the many times Stuart felt like leaving the band and actually did for short periods of time before always coming back. So lyrically, it can allude to a lot of things. And I think it's one of the more interesting songs on the album. But like I said, I think it comes up short musically. And actually, my favorite moment of the song musically comes very early, and that's the intro, <laughs> when it starts with those quiet guitars and then kick into it with a full band. And right at that point, when they kick into it and soar with the guitar and uh, the lead line, it soars right away. And what a great melodic guitar line playing over a band that's really kicking into the song. At that moment, I always smile. I always smile when the songs start. It's just so effective, so melodic and very powerful and definitely very big country. But then the singing starts and the song just loses me. It's vocals over a weird drum pattern and it, it just, no, it, it doesn't really follow up the intro, so to speak. It falls flat. Um, it kind of feels like Don't Burrows get to the chorus. The chorus again starts getting hummable. It's not necessarily my favorite chorus they ever did. So um, that's that's really how I feel about the song musically. It falls flat. Uh, but we can't talk about the song without mentioning Stewart's infamous stage rap in the middle of the song. I've got something to ask you. Is anyone here ashamed of where they come from? Yeah. Is anyone here ashamed of the color of their skin? Is anyone here ashamed of the religion? Is anyone here ashamed of who you slept with last night? 
<laughs> that is just hilarious. <laughs> For the first time I heard that, I laughed and laughed. And I still kind of smile when I hear it. It's a funny line. And it's very Stuart, most of all. I'm, I'm not sure if Mike would have thrown that line in there. Those kind of lines were definitely part of Stuart's makeup. And I, I miss that. That uh, It makes me smile. So, yeah, the lyrics are very interesting. The melody is so-so. And while I think the lyrics are very interesting as a fan of Stuart... I really don't connect with the song personally, which is the thing I come back to for the song that does fall short or does end up on the latter half of the ranking for me. So that's uh, I'm not ashamed. Yeah, very good analysis and very much actually mirrors my own on this one. Um, yeah, clearly this is a this is a relationship type of song, judging from those lyrics and and the whole simple little pledge and all that. Definitely a you could easily take that as a marriage type of thing, and that that makes perfect sense, especially as we've talked about the stuff that he was going through at the time, which you'll hear in other other songs here, and all the way up through Driving to Damascus. Um, but yeah, there's just something about it that just doesn't quite gel. It doesn't quite work for me. And you mentioned the opening, and I I, I also like that open, the the quiet opening. But for me, it ends there with the quiet opening. I mean, when when the band kicks in, I, that that part is is okay it's good but there's just something about it that it just doesn't i don't know it just doesn't grab me none, none of the none of that song really just grabs me and and inspires me or or makes me sit up and think wow this is great i mean i, I think it's a bad choice as a single um my choice for a single is going to come later and i think that would have been a much better choice of any of these but we'll talk about that when we get to that song but for me, the, the best thing about this song live, and I'd forgotten about that little line that you mentioned that Stuart said, and, and uh, yeah, that is funny. But for me, the best thing about this song when they did it live was when they did it um, on the Driving to Damascus tour, because they in that section, they would play Harvest Home. They would start to sing Harvest Home in the middle of that song. Yeah, I mean, again, we've got what to me is a mediocre song, um, and it's going to be a familiar refrain from me for, on this album. Um, there's some good parts here. There's nothing. There's no. To me, there are no standout parts like there, like there is in Message of Love, where I think the verses of that song are just so stellar. But to me, everything on this song is just kind of flatlined. It's okay. It's nothing bad, but it's just, it, it just kind of, it just doesn't really. There's nothing here that really grabs me. Um, I've seen the video a few times. It's kind of a comical video where the band is sort of going through all these different uh, guises. They, they look like uh, a, a band from the 60s at one point, from the 70s. They do all these other different uh, funny little uh, costume changes, and it's kind of a, a cute video. And um, by the way, I also I, – since I'm talking about the way they look, I'll, I'll take this opportunity to say that uh, I always thought it was interesting that Stuart – grew his hair out for this period. I wanted to mention that in the beginning. I always thought he looked kind of cool with the long hair. Um, it was an interesting look for Stuart, and he, that was really on display in this video for I'm Not Ashamed, too. It, he, he almost wasn't recognizable at first because you really weren't used to seeing Stuart with, with shoulder-length rock hair kind of right. a, a look to him. And um, I remember seeing that and being kind of shocked but thinking it was a cool cool change of pace for the guy. 
but he, he didn't keep it that long. It wasn't wasn't uh, too much too much longer that he went back to his usual haircut. But uh, in any case, um, the video was kind of interesting and and kind of takes the song back to where I usually look at it, which even if you dissect the lyrics like we have, it is clearly more of a relationship type of song. But I kind of when I was looking for something to really gravitate to on this song, I kind of looked at it as almost a rallying cry for the fact that the band was just deemed uncool by the so-called powers that be and Stewart just saying I'm not ashamed of anything that I've done you know this big country is something I'm proud of and we're all proud of big country and yet the ironic thing of of that statement is that it did seem like they were changing to try to capture that success that really had eluded them from the beginning so I don't know I, I this is just this just to me I, I wish I had more in-depth things to say about it but you've really exhausted all that it, to me it's a meaty Joker song it should never have been a single it wasn't going to do anything for them single wise and it's a song that I will sing along to and occasionally play but it's nothing I would ever really seek out in the big country catalog so this this one to me is more toward the bottom this is my number 10 okay it's my number 13 Okay, sail into nothing. Um, again, th- this is a—it's a, a likable song. I think that's the best compliment I can pay it. It's a likable song. It's—it's it's not a great song to me. It's not a song that um, I think sits among Big Country's proudest moments or best moments. Not even close. But it's a likable song. It's interesting in that it's a foray into a more pop type of sound while still having some of the traditional aspects of the big country sound in there. And I think that part works. Um, I, I specifically have to smile every time I hear that, that breakdown in the middle section that really sounds like it came right out of chance. The, uh, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. The little chicken picking guitar part. And he even does a little harmony part to it as well. So he, he plays it straight the first time, and then there's a little harmony chicken-picking part that goes along with it, which is nice. I like that. Um, this is one of those songs, though, that I was alluding to earlier where technically I could say that the vocals are, are really interesting. The backup vocals are, are good, and they're very layered from a technical standpoint, but I just don't like them. I don't, I don't And I have nothing to, to base that on other than I just don't like them. There's something about that. I think Mark's voice is just too prominent in this and i think that if they were going to do that high-pitched background part with the little oohs and ahs i think they would have been better served to get a uh, get a woman to do them um, you gotta be kidding no singing ladies no well it depends on what kind of singing lady they would get uh, certainly no, not the no, no. not the peace in our time singing ladies but i i would rather hear a female voice on this than than mark's high-pitched voice because it's just it's too it's too out front for me for my tastes and I just I just don't like it. I, that's all I can say. I mean, it it's, it's, comes down to purely a taste thing. I mean, like I say, technically I can say it's good. He hits the right notes. <laughs> but uh, I don't know much about art, but I know what I like. That's about it. Yeah, yeah. That's, about, that's about it. I don't know. I don't know nothing about no art, but I don't like that there singing. <laughs> yeah. But it, like I say, it's not bad, but it's just I don't know. Something about it is too much. It's just too much for me. And I, I could say that in some of these other songs where where his voice is more prominent. Um. And it kind of contributes to that really poppy, throwaway type of feel to the song. I mean, from a from a structural standpoint, it's a very um, 
simple song. It's got very traditional type of chord progression that you would you would hear in what would be considered a a, a popular type of song. Some people have often mentioned this as, as should have been a single. I I wouldn't necessarily say that, but it certainly has more of a I think of uh, of that sort of feel to it than some of the the ones that were were released. Um, we've got a, a return to Stewart's more nautical themes, and I think I think coming so soon after Ships, you know, two albums with Ships on it. I think when I saw Sail into Nothing, I just thought that's another song about ships, and he even mentioned ships in the in the chorus. So for some reason, to me, I remember at the time thinking, like, enough with the ships already. Um, it, it's lyrically, it's a song that's there, there certainly aren't really that many deep lines in this. Uh, the the lyrics don't really measure up to the weightiness as we as you mentioned before from that Stewart quote of some of his other other songs but that's okay i mean that's fine it's it's okay to do some less uh abstract weighty type of lyrics but at the same time i think these lyrics are are relatively lightweight he he can't resist though he always goes back into some area that that is traditional stewart and that would be the chorus sail into nothing i mean you've got that line and I, i still don't really totally understand what that means in relation to the rest of the song where we've got these these lines of this person that means so much to him and does so much for him, and then we've got the chorus: we sail into nothing and never le- need those ships again. <laughs> I, I don't quite grasp that. Maybe you can add something to that that I that's eluding me. But I yeah. never I never quite understood that. Um, I have a take, so you can say what you feel about that after. Okay, good. I, I'll I'll be interested to hear that. Um, so I I guess to sum up my feelings on this song. It's got some nice moments musically. It's it's uh, it's definitely a departure for big country. It's it's more. It's definitely the probably the poppiest, cleanest, pristine little poppy type of song that they've ever ever recorded. I, I think, and it's in some respects, um, it's it's a lightweight song, but it's got some some heft to it in, in some other areas, and it's got some traditional big country motifs that run through it. So. I, I do agree with a lot of fans out there that the live version was more interesting and they did some really cool stuff on the live version that I always really, really did like. And I think I liked that live version more and it made me appreciate the song more when I heard that version of it. Um, so on the album, I mean, it, it really falls into the category that a lot of these other songs do for me. It's and, and it makes it tough to talk about because I can't really say that I hate the song. I can't really say that I love the song. It's just kind of a um, eh, song for me. It doesn't do really much of anything for me. Sometimes I will enjoy listening to it, but um, it's just it's just mediocrity to me, basically. And I think that's mediocrity mediocrity in the big country universe, which is which is a lot more than mediocrity in most people's universes. But for me, it's it's just uh, yeah. I appreciate what they were trying to do, but it doesn't mean a lot to me. Yeah, I'm scratching my head as I sit there. This is <laughs> we're starting to get into the incredible area here. I, I knew we would come scratch in. it, scratch it with your Wolverine claws. <laughs> I'm glad I have my Viking helmet on. No, I mean I I love this song. I I will uh, say that straight off the bat. This song was an early favorite of mine, and it still holds up. This has not deteriorated one bit. It's a beautiful, solid, very melodic song, and I just I'm just taken in by what a gorgeous melody the song has what wonderful playing and uh, i love those backing vocals i i don't hear that they great in any way for for me anyway but on top of all that 
all that wonderful awesomeness. Listen to those dark lyrics. I mean, we know that Stuart could create happy-sounding songs, which are actually quite dark. Sail Into Nothing is, if anything, more beautiful and sad than happy-sounding and dark, if you will. So I, I, I think of this almost as a ballad. I mean, the playing is kind of not... It doesn't go into a syrup land. It isn't a slow ballad, but the melody and something about it just invites itself to, for me to think of it that way. Um, and the title... It's it's definitely not happy sounding. When you look at the lyrics, you get the sense that this is a song with very serious topics. And to me, this is a song about dying or welcoming death. And for a while at first, mm. before I studied the lyrics closer, my take on this song was lighter and perhaps more naive. I thought of this as a nice song about falling asleep, about being provided a break from all the troubles of the world by sleeping for a while, by resting. But uh, I faced up when confronted with the evidence. It's kind of hard to ignore some of the lyrics here, which clearly point to this uh, as a song about welcoming death. And I may, I may have ignored the obvious for years because I really didn't want to think of the song that way. If this is a song about falling asleep, then there is a nice comfort in the song. If the song is about welcoming death, then there is very little comfort to gain here, unless you feel like welcoming death yourself, which I only ever think of when I have to sit through your monologues on the show. <laughs> I think uh, the individual singing... Welcome to song, my world, especially <laughs> when I'm editing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, uh, I, I, I'm happy for you to, to have that pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the individual singing this song or thinking these thoughts is, I don't feel he's wanting death at the outset, but uh, this comes from being tired or weary or lonely or fallen, which is, I guess, the words he use. Uh, when I am tired, tired of the fight, you come to me and it's all right. And you is... Uh, I don't know if it's death in a direct form or the harbinger of death or someone. So again, if I am very wary of my sins, you lie with me when I'm fallen. And when I'm lonely, you take a hold of me and I'm all right. If I'm waiting for another line, you take me in, make it all fine. So it's all pointing to something. And this is someone who's got nothing left, who is ready to be lifted away from all the worries, away from the loneliness and away from lying there beaten. It's basically give me a break. So I, I was thinking about this and realized that the song doesn't need to be about someone young and tired of life. It could be about someone old who had a full life, but the end is drawing near and they know their time is up and they are able to face that in a calm manner, which it's still not a happy subject, but at least it doesn't need to be a very tragic one. So when your time truly is here, you resign to it in a different way, and it's the next step of the journey. So we managed to get one journey in even this episode. So um, I think Stuart is very poetic about death itself in this song, and I will pick up just on a few things from the chorus, um, starting with the mention of ships. I think he refers to people's bodies as ship in this context. So you use your ships, your bodies, to sail through life. And the mention of sailing is basically living. As you, you sail your ship, you live your life, you steer your body through life. And the crystal wings is the one that probably is a little harder, but I think that's the spiritual aspect. Um, what is it that gives your ship progress? And it's clearly something either spiritual or your personality, something on the, that side which also is what motivates you and brings you forward here on the last journey. It also makes me think of the popular view of angels as beings with wings. And this is a song about a transition from life to death, so I don't know if that plays in at all. And then you have the nothing, which is really the, the sad bit when you think about it. As, as some believe in life after death, 
while others believe that death is the end. And this song seems to subscribe to the last of those theories, which again is pretty dark, especially if you think, uh, you know, is there life after death? And it doesn't sound like someone is going to heaven here. They're, they're going into nothing. It's over. It ends here. And the reference to never need those ships again, going back to your body as a ship, you have sailed through life, but now there is one last trip to do into nothing. And after that, you don't need a ship anymore. The ship is broken uh, or you've done the last journey. We're done. So this is not a particularly light subject matter, and I have no idea what spurred Stuart to write such a song, but I think he did a good job. I think, uh, again, the, the speciality he has of writing something that sounds beautiful, nice, uplifting, and actually it's about something else, is is in full force in this song. The, the lyrics on this song are also as poetic as any you'll find on this album. I think um, the chorus, especially if you think of his allegories for... Uh, for bodies, for living, for coming to the end. Uh, the fact that it, it wasn't something that came to me right away. It, it, it took years of just thinking about this and listening to the song and thinking about it, and eventually yeah. I got to it. It's a so, really interesting take on it. I, I really like that take, actually. Um, yeah, I like that a lot. I, I never, it never hit me that way. Um, but I, especially, that's the first thing that ever has made sense to me as far as Never need those ships again. Making ships be like a body. Yeah. So that that's a, that's a great interpretation. The only problem I would have with it is, as far as being welcoming death with the verses, is that clearly in the verses he's saying something that has happened to him many times, or or with this person or this entity or whatever it is he's speaking of. When I am tired, tired of the fight, you come to me and it's all right. Uh, so that's that's saying it as if. This has happened before. It's happened many times. So uh, that's that. I would hesitate to saying him addressing death there, or or the harbinger of death, unless it, unless it's him thinking of oh one day I will die. And I, I have a and that will be wonderful. I and I have a hard time believing that's what he was thinking there, um, because it, throughout these verses he's he's relating things that clearly it, to the character in the song have happened before and happened many times, and he's taken taken solace from. But mm -hmm. um, but yeah, but the sail into nothing that that could very well be what he was thinking there. That's that's a very good point. Now I, I do know that some of the things that Stewart said in the driving to Damascus era, though, especially like some emails that I'd exchanged with him, he he definitely believed in a life after death. He but so he didn't believe at least at the time that he died that there was nothing. Mm -hmm. But um, that that doesn't mean that he wouldn't write it in a song though. So you yeah, know, you it, never it, know. It's, it's like I said, I have no idea what would have spurred him to write such a song. That's um, that's very interesting. So I, I can't think of an alternative to my interpretation, I think. I'm still thinking. So if other people have interpretations, please get on the Facebook group. Let's discuss this. Well, because, that's the uh, best one I've heard. That's definitely the best one I've heard. And like I said, that you know, I, I always viewed the song as uh, – because I looked at those verse lyrics as more of a relationship type of thing happening. It, I viewed it as more of a lighter song. So not even taking death into the equation. So that, that definitely makes it a little bit more, uh, a little bit more interesting to me. Yeah, so, yeah, and like I told you for years, I thought this was about sleeping, and that makes sense in the verses. But uh, I think the choruses allude to something more deeper than that. So, well, it is what it is. We we will never know, I guess, at this point, unless there are someone has right things that explain it. But uh, musically, the song itself is definitely not at all mournful. It's freshly played with a reasonably brisk arrangement for not being a fast song. 
Um, I think Tony's bass line kicks it off over great atmospheric guitars. And again, the harmony vocals, I, I really like them on this song. And Mark also has a lot of great sounding drum fills too. So it's not a yeah. sci ballad. It's got a it, good it is tempo. great. It is. And it is great bass playing by Tony too. I'm glad you brought that up because I should have. Yeah, some, some great little melodic cool bass playing in that song. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I always found this song very beautiful. It's uh, I just love it. And despite the subject matter or what I think it is, I actually get some sense of comfort from it. So, that's good. Yeah, so that's that's sail into nothing. Where do you rank it? I rank it as number four. Oh wow, I've got it at number nine. Okay. But I, I will admit that if if uh, you know you've you've made me think about it a little differently, so I I still wouldn't raise it up multiple points. But uh, thinking about that makes me think the song is a little bit deeper than I originally envisioned. So. Perfect. We'll leave it. We'll leave it at nine now. So though, yeah, that was a good interpretation. So that's episode twenty-seven of the Great Divide, the first part of our dissection of Why the Long Face. Hope you enjoyed this. We will pick up exactly where we left off in episode twenty-eight. So I hope you enjoyed this. As always, let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook at the Great Divide Podcast. Just search for the Great Divide Podcast on Facebook, or send us an email at bigcountrypodcast at gmail and also, don't forget, there's still time to enter our competition, and so many people have entered and sent in responses. Actually, zero so far. Where's my damn phone again? <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> Jeez, nobody ever calls here. And don't forget to enter our Great Divide competition to get the In a Broken Promised Land 7-inch. We have uh, not received any final entries yet, so we are going to tweak the contest to make it a little bit easier for you guys out there to enter this thing and to have a good chance of winning. And Spine is going to explain that to you. We're not going to change any of the questions, so you still have the 11 same questions. But what we're going to do is, for one, for each one you get right, that's one ticket in the hat. So if you answer all 11 correctly, that's 11 chances to win the prize. If you don't know everybody, that means it doesn't matter so much. If you get eight right, that's eight tickets, etc., etc. So hopefully that encourages you to enter, even if there's one or two you don't know, whereas before you felt you had to have everyone right. Now we're opening the floodgates, and I will take responsibility. I will keep a tight tally on this and keep every every ticket under control. So hopefully that makes it a bit more interesting. Yeah, we overestimated how much you guys scrutinize these episodes, and we are crushed that you do not as much as we had hoped. So uh, we're going to tweak it so that it'll be easier for all of you guys out there. So Our egos will never be the same again. No, never. So that's it. We'll see you guys next time, and we'll pick up with Why the Long Face and its dissection. So take care. Cheerio. Cheerio.